Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Um, Lord, I thank you for the gospel of Matthew. And I thank you, Lord, um, for the story of Jesus, this Christ, who is the promised one, who is our Savior, who is our Lord. Lord, I thank you for Matthew and how you worked in his life, how you used him uh, to pen this gospel for us. Lord, I pray that as we study this passage of Scripture, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning, that you would speak to us um, individually, Lord, as we look at this story historically in context, what happened, um, how things came about. We, we pray that you would um, help us to clearly see um, what happened, that your spirit would minister to our hearts some uh, 2,000 years removed. We thank you that your word is living and active and has a way to, to touch us and to um, convict us and to move us along in our relationship with you. Father, we do pray um, that our time now would honor you, that you would be glorified, and that you would do a work in our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 reads, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now as Jesus was walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going, out through, going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, uh, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he, he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And Father, we do thank you for your word. May you bless our time now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So the story is, is sort of a transitional story. Uh, we're, we're at a place in Matthew where we're concluding the first of three parts. Uh, so far, Matthew has sort of inter- introduced us um, w- when we covered it in a sort of a boring way. The Gospel of Matthew starts with the reading of Jesus' genealogy. The whole heart of Matthew is to show that Jesus fulfills prophecy, that he is indeed um, the heir of the throne of David, that he qualifies uh, through every which way to be the Messiah, to be the King of Israel, um, that he came. We see his early life. Uh, we see, we're introduced to John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets who walks onto the pages of the New Testament, who was Uh, prophesied in Malachi that he would be the forerunner to Christ. We see his prophetic ministry of challenging the people of Israel that they would repent, that they would get right, that they would uh, repent of their sins and turn to God. And he was baptizing people in the Jordan uh, just north of the Dead Sea. Thousands responded to him. This was a, a huge ministry. And Jesus comes And he is baptized by John. John resists saying, I should be baptized by you, not you by me. And Jesus says, no, this this must be done. 
And Jesus is baptized two weeks ago. We looked at that story. And as he came up, the heavens opened up. A dove, the spirit came down, descended upon Jesus. And the father's voice said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And from that story, we looked at the, the temptations of Christ, where he spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And ultimately, where he comes through strong, showing that he has the strength of the Messiah, that he identifies with us in our weakness, that he's been tempted as we are in all ways. And we come to this story. Um, I'm going to show the verse that Justin's going to have to stay sharp today. Uh, not really. This is, we have one more click and then you're done. Um, so we're going to go the, the two slides ahead. This is the map. So in today's story, this is sort of, this is sort of the, the, the movement of what happens um, in, from a geography-wise. So down here, we have the very tip of the Dead Sea, which none of you guys could probably see. We have the, the, the Dead Sea down here. The arrow starts. This is Jerusalem. The arrow should probably go down even further. But down in this region is the wilderness where Jesus uh, went through his temptations. Uh, we have the Sea of Galilee in the north. The Jordan River flows from north to south into the Dead Sea. Somewhere down here is where John the Baptist was uh, baptizing people for the repentance of sins and where Jesus came to be, um, to be baptized. Today's story, we're going to see that John the Baptist was arrested. And likely, we know historically, that Herod had a prison just on the east side of the Dead Sea. And that's likely where he was held into custody, but we don't really know. Um, Jesus is going to move from down in the wilderness area north. This outer big circle, what this represents... This is the area of the Galilee, um, the Galilee region. If you read this, I think we hear the term Galilee and we quickly associate it with the lake. But the lake, the Sea of Galilee, is, is its own identity. And this region right here, it's kind of hard to see, but this whole area is the Galilee region. So we see that Jesus moves from the wilderness. He heads up north to the region of Galilee. We then see that he moves from Nazareth down into Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, literally right on the water's edge. Um, all right, you can go back to the first side and turn on the lights. Thanks, Justin. We uh, give Justin a tip back there for all his hard work. Um, <clears throat> so we come to verse 12, and we read, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into the Galilee. So something happened. Jesus is down here in the wilderness. There's a lot of speculation over what does this word withdrew mean? Um, it can be used, and it's used often in the sense that this is sort of a, a strategic sort of defensive word to, to withdraw from something from safety, to make a, a strategic move uh, defensively to protect yourself. Um, some say that's reading too much. I don't know. It's very clear that Jesus is down in the wilderness. He gets word that John the Baptist has been arrested. He's been taken into custody. And this arrest caused Jesus to, to head up north into the Galilee region, heading into Nazareth. And then we know that from other gospel accounts, as he went and preached in Nazareth, he was run out of his hometown and he transitions down into uh, to Capernaum, this town that's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll see that this was a very Gentile town. Uh, there were Roman authorities there. This is the desert. Israel is very dry. And if you have fresh water, that is a, a huge commodity. You need water to live. There are three springs that flow into the, the, the region of, or into the Sea of Galilee. And so this would have been an area that's was very protected by Rome. Uh, there were a lot of Gentiles there. We know that there were some Jews there because there was a synagogue there. But the synagogue there, we'll learn, was built by a Roman soldier that he funded it so that they could build the synagogue. If you go to Israel today, you, the, 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 rem, the remains of this synagogue still exist, that you can, you can go inside of it and, and uh, have a look of where Jesus taught. Um, but Matthew doesn't really give us at this point any backdrop to the whole situation of John the Baptist. Um, and I want us to sort of explore a little bit of, of, of 
the circumstances, the, the, the bigger picture of what happened with John other than he was just taken into custody that might have caused Jesus to say, okay, we need, we need to move along here. Um, if you'll turn with me over to Matthew chapter 14, Matthew doesn't share with us anything about his arrest until chapter 14, verses 3 through 4. Um, he fast forward, or maybe he takes his time getting to his arrest and his ultimate um, execution. And here he tells us in verse 3 of chapter 14, For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. So, so this just makes it sound like, okay, Herod had a brother, his wife is Philip, and somehow his wife wanted him arrested. But then in verse 4, Matthew tells us that John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So what had happened is Herod took his brother's wife as his own wife, and John the Baptist, as he has his ministry of repentance uh, for the nation, for the people there, that they would prepare the way for the kingdom of heaven, he challenged Herod, who is this ruthless man who was the ruler over this region, and he says it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife, and he challenged him for his sin. And in verse 5 we learned, although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. And so Herod had this hatred for John. Um, but there's more to the story. If you'll turn with me over to Mark chapter 6, Mark gives us a little bit more insight into this. So Matthew, Mark, we're not going to look at Mark, Luke's accounts, but you can see where Luke tells the story. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 17, the first two verses here, 17 and 18 of Mark chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, he, he pretty much gives the same account. And then in verse 19, he expands on the story. Uh, Herodias had a grudge against him, that's John the Baptist, and wanted him put to death. Eventually the story, the, uh, Herod's going to have this big banquet. Her- Herodias's daughter, just assuming she's younger than her mom, has some sort of dance that pulled on the heartstrings or other strings of Herod where Herod says, I'll do whatever you want. And Herodias tells her daughter, hey, what, what you want is Herod's head, or you want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And ultimately, that's how John the Baptist would be executed. But so we know his wife Herodias is very angry and she hates John the Baptist. She's the one who's married Herod. And this prophet is basically calling her out, saying that her marriage uh, to her husband, who is her ex-husband's brother, is unlawful. She does not like this guy. But Herod wouldn't put John the Baptist to death. Verse 20, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So Herod resisted the demand to have him killed. There was, there was he, he recognized that he's this righteous man that he's holy that he's of god he's his prophet it makes you wonder why he doesn't heed his warning but just because somebody's identified as a godly person and is is challenging you for your sin uh, it doesn't mean that i always or we like to respond to that he also knew that he had a huge crowd of followers thousands upon thousands of people were disciples of john and if he was to execute him he would have Possibly an insurrection on his hands, which Rome did not at all want. And then he continues in verse 20. And when he heard him, when when Herod heard John the Baptist, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. My mind wanders about this. Like, did Herod go meet with John the Baptist and John the Baptist was challenging for his sins and like openly just talking to him? There's this there's this idea that Herod didn't really like him, but he was also intrigued by the message of John, what he was saying. Okay, then verse 21. So let's let's go back to, to Matthew chapter 4. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, 
So while he doesn't let us know the, the whole nature of the situation, we learn or, or we know from exploring other places in the gospel that John had, had a powerful ministry that tons of people responded to him. He was taken into custody, that he was arrested because the, basically the top dog in that region, the guy who ruled over the region got upset with him because John challenged him for his sin. And he was taken into custody and ultimately was put to death. Uh, there was this mounting sort of persecution over uh, new religions or sects within Judaism that would rise up to, to rock the boat. So something happened in this. Jesus moves north. It says that because of this, he withdrew into the galley, leaving Nazareth, and he came and he settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zeb- Zebulun and Naphtali. So as Matthew gives this, he then in verse 14, he gives us a little commentary, which Matthew does more than any writer. He points to the fulfilled prophecy in this action. He said this was to fulfill, which was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. Matthew says this is exactly what Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. We, we read these verses and most of us, or I would venture to say all of us, none of us have any clue the context of what was said there. Um, but all of those that would be reading the Gospel of Matthew, that he would be reading his account, when he saw this, uh, when he gives reason, this prophetic announcement or confirmation that Jesus is moving up through Nazareth down into Capernaum was prophesied by Isaiah. And the whole context, this is a verse that we all really know. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read this, and this is a verse that most of us should be familiar with. It's a Christmas verse. And in Isaiah chapter 9, the first five verses sort of give this warning out of chapter 8 that the judgment's coming. In chapter 9, verse 1, we read, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. And on the other side of the Jordan... Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as the battle of Midian for every boot of the booted warrior in the battled tumult and, the, and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. Okay, I got through all that, you guys. I can hear it in you. We don't recognize that verse. You told us that we all know this verse. And then right from there is the verse that we all know. Verse six, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So this is the great prophecy from Isaiah, one of the many prophecies concerning the Messiah. And as Matthew records this, He says, guys, the fact that he relocated as he makes his way into Capernaum, this town that is a Gentile region that's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. He says this was foretold of, that this is where the Messiah would come forth from. It's fascinating to me that this region is a Gentile region. He doesn't sprout up out of Jerusalem, which was the stronghold 
of Judaism. Matthew, throughout his gospel, makes the point that Jesus isn't just Lord of the Jews. He is Lord over all and for all peoples. And that there's this, there, there's this commission to share the good news with the whole world. And as I look at this passage, a thought keeps sort of um, coming to mind. When I look at verse 12 and 13, Jesus was facing in his humanity this circumstance. He's down there. He's getting going. John the Baptist has these huge crowds following after him. Jesus makes his entrance. He's baptized by John. The, the heavens open up and announce them that he's the Messiah. He goes in to face his temptations. And the next thing you know that John the Baptist is, is placed into custody and everything is sort of disrupted. I can only imagine what John the Baptist is going through. Here is this great prophet, this, this prophet who was said would come from Malachi. 400 years after the promise, John the Baptist comes. He, he waits 30-some years before his ministry kicks off. And then he comes out of the wilderness proclaiming that the Messiah is at hand, that the nation needs to repent, that they need to get their hearts right, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Crowds are following him. It all culminates with Jesus getting baptized, and then it's cut short. There are times when God gives us sort of seasons of ministry and opportunities, and then sometimes he, he stops them before we're ready. And it can be a difficult thing. I, I, I can only imagine, I don't think that John the Baptist wanted to be in prison. I don't think he wanted to be there. I think that this would rattle his cage about what was going on. When we get to Matthew chapter 14, we'll see that as he's in prison, he sends some people to Jesus, questioning Jesus, saying, hey, can you ask him, is he the Messiah? This John the Baptist, who is so confident about who Jesus is, now as he's in prison, has his questions. And as he goes, sends his guys to Jesus to confirm that he is indeed the Messiah, Jesus announces to them that there is no greater man than John the Baptist. He's the greatest of all men who have ever lived. And he tells the guys some things, and they go back and they assure John of their ministry. Jesus has a circumstance that drives him up north. And as he goes up there, Matthew comes with these three verses saying that this was God's plan all along, that as he went, he fulfilled prophecy. And the thing that I've been sort of wrestling with and thinking through this is our, our lives. You know, when everything is going great, like it's, it's wonderful, we don't really struggle um, through the good times. But when we get news about something or something happens in our life where the the bottom drops out that causes us to sort of reevaluate and to consider and to wonder what's going on. Um, th those places are where our faith is really nurtured and developed. Um, you know, I'm not the Messiah and neither are any of you. Like none of us have like all sorts of prophecy. Like I'm not walking around going, oh, this fulfilled prophecy. Um, I've heard it's a good way to get out of jury duty though. Um, my brother-in-law, his strategy when he gets called into jury duty, when they ask him a question, he answers every question. Wait, I don't think he really does this, but it's funny. He says, in accordance to prophecy, my name is Michael Hilton. Well, where do you work? In accordance with prophecy, I like work here. And he gets dismissed all the time for some reason. I don't know why. But Jesus had all sorts of prophecy working for him. And it's... But in his humanity, this circumstance of John, it drove him north. And I don't know what, if, what, like, it, they knew each other. They were cousins. And I, Jesus was a man, and he experienced love and grief and, and, and emotions. And seeing John being taken into custody, this had to be difficult. But then Matthew, when he looks at this after everything was said and done, he, through the Spirit, points to this prophecy that was fulfilled in all of this. And one of the verses that's really helped me in life navigate difficult trials and even looking back at my childhood of, uh, of living in, in sort of an abusive home uh, with a lot of struggles and trials and not knowing where God was in the midst of all of that. Um, 
Acts 17, 26 to 27 has been a verse that has helped me tremendously in, in understanding circumstances and how do we handle when things don't go right? And in Acts 17, 26, as Paul is standing before the, the great philosophers of his day, um, reasoning with them about the true God, he says to them, and he, that's God, made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul basically lays out that all of us came from Adam and Eve. And it's not an accident that you were born in the place that you were born, that you've had the geographical boundaries that you lived in, in the time slot in history, uh, from the time of your birth to your death. This wasn't an accident. You might have been a surprise to your parents, as I was, but I wasn't a surprise to God. That my time in history, my coming into this world through my biological mom in the circumstances that I have in the, the time period that I've been given. This verse that Paul talks about in many ways says that in all of human history, in all circumstances, my circumstances that I've come into are the sweet spot for me in order to find God, that I would seek him. And this, that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way and find him. It's, the, it's the, the, the word that would describe a blind person as they see with their hands, as they feel around, this sort of groping. If you've ever met a blind person, there was a girl who used to, uh, to come to the church during the week to help clean. And when I'd see her, she'd hold up her hands and I would put her hands to my face. And that's how she would see me. And that's the image here, that God has placed our circumstances in, in, in a way that he wants to use them. I think the point is that I, my prayer is that, that we who know Christ would look at our circumstances, that we have a greater view of our circumstances, understanding that whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty, that it didn't slip through the cracks. God is sovereign. He is in control. And I would advise you, if you ever find yourself in a counseling situation with somebody who's gone through like a loss of a child, a loss of a job, they're hurting, that is not the time to share theology on the sovereignty of God. It's, you just give them a hug, tell them you love them, that you're there for them. But when you're the individual going through a trial where your bottom drops out and you can't make sense of anything, there's no greater place to be in that situation to understand the sovereignty of God. To say, I don't have a clue what's going on here and I don't know why he's doing this to me. I don't know why these things are happening, but I trust him and I trust that he has a plan. And I believe that many years after these things are in my own life, these difficult trials and circumstances that I didn't have a clue at the time, those are the things I think God has used most powerfully in my own life to shape me and to mature me into the person that he needs me to be. And so I'd encourage you that uh, when you're going through life, turn to him and trust that he is in control. And so we see that he points to this, this prophecy that, that Jesus, the Messiah, would, would find his way to this region. And at the end of verse 16, this sort of concludes the first part of the Gospel of Matthew. He's now made his case provided the evidence that Jesus fits the bill, that he is indeed the Messiah, he is indeed the Christ. And as we go to verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17, through Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, is the second section of Matthew. And we learn from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew is sort of backing up in the next few verses for the rest of this chapter. Matthew is sort of giving an overview over this season of Jesus' life um, that he's going to be proclaiming almost the identical message 
that John the Baptist, this repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we go to Matthew 16, 21, you don't have to. But there at Caesarea Philippi, when all of the disciples are there with Jesus, Jesus is going to begin asking them, hey, who do the people say that I am? And they're saying, well, some say Elijah, some say this, some say that. And he looks at them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And Jesus says, you are correct, Peter. And upon that proclamation, I will build my church. And then as we continue and you get to verse 21, we see that there's a major shift into the third section of Matthew. And there it says, from that time, same verbiage. It's the only place we see it here in chapter 4, verse 17. And then here, going into the the third section. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So something happens. Most of Matthew from now until about chapter 19, most of the setting of Matthew happens in the the region of Capernaum and Galilee region. Moving on in chapter 19, he's going to start heading south to Jerusalem for his execution. And so for, during this window, over the, the, the next few chapters, during this window, Jesus was teaching. He was proclaiming, preaching, repent, changing your mind, agreeing with God. I don't know that this word necessarily means that there's actions that follow. I think that this is the in your mind when you agree, yes, God, you are right. I am in sin. I am a sinner. I need your help. There's a humility, a change of direction. It may take a while. Some people change right away. Some of us are a little bit slower. I'm still in the process of change. There are areas in my life that God is still working on and he will always be working on. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This theme of the kingdom of heaven is going to be developed It's an area that there are many people who know and love Jesus, have a variety of different opinions on. What what I hold to is I, I believe that the original listeners, those that would have heard this message of repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, they would have understood it based on what we read in Isaiah chapter 9, what we would read in Daniel, this, this prophecy of the Messiah that the king will come to reign and to rule, that the kingdom, this earthly kingdom would be established. We see this in the apostles asking questions and sort of we look at it from where we are and we sort of say, how can they miss it? Why are they so focused on his earthly ruling and reigning? Well, the Bible talks about the kingdom of, that there is going to be a literal kingdom on earth. That Jesus' second coming, he's going to come with a, a sword in his mouth and an iron fist and he's going to establish his kingdom. And so I, I believe that his offer was legitimate and that he was coming. And in the, first, the second part of Matthew, that this offer to establish the kingdom was there. But as John writes in John chapter 1, somewhere in there, that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And Israel rejected their Messiah. And things adjusted. And there's a whole like, how did the church age? How do what we know as Christianity? Some suggest that this is sort of like a, a, a parenthesis in God's plan. I don't know if it's that simple. Man, I, my hands are open I, I, as far as what I believe. Um, I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, that was a joke. But we're going to watch this unfold. And... and it, And Matthew's making this point that Jesus is proclaiming it. He never defines the kingdom of heaven. But we're going to get challenged by a whole lot of this teaching. We're going to get an explanation. I'm sort of terrified about next week's message. Really, for the next few months, I don't know how long it's going to take exactly. Um, But in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7... We are going to study the greatest sermon that was ever preached by probably one of the worst preachers of all time. (laughs) 
me. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm, like, how in the world are we going to go through, like, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is so convicting, is so powerful, is so challenging. And I think that the Sermon on the Mount is his teaching about his kingdom. And so I believe that this last part of Matthew chapter 4 is Matthew's attempt, or not his attempt, is his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, his conclusion of establishing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And since he's the Messiah, when he speaks, it should humble us and we should bow before him and we should respond. And in verse 18 through 22, he's going to look at the calling of the disciples. Now, there were 12 disciples, but only four are shown here. I had all sorts of questions in my mind. Where are the other ones? Why are they not mentioned? I know that Matthew is called to follow Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew is not set up in chronological order. Um, He's telling his story. And then uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he's starting with his teaching very uh, up front. And then when we get into chapters 9 and beyond, there's going to be things that happened at different times and places. But he calls these, these four guys, these, the four fishermen of the disciples. Why aren't the other guys mentioned? What's up with these four? I have so many questions, and, and I think that there's a, a lesson here is we don't necessarily, we don't need to answer every question that we come up with. Not every question that we have is a, is a valid question. I know that these four are called, and it says, Now Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, who his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and all of the work that they were doing to to follow him. I just think poor Zebedee, they're there doing all the work, they're cleaning up. Jesus comes by and says, hey, you two, come follow me. See, Dad, (laughs) you finish up the nets. This wasn't a blind introduction. Some of us suggested that these guys had about a year with Jesus knowing who he was. And so when he came to them and said, come follow me, this was a rabbi asking them to follow him. They understood what they were, at the best they could, they understood what they were getting themselves into. The father certainly supported them. Um, three, a phrase is used three times in this section. And in verse 20, In verse 22 and in verse 25, we read, they left their nets and followed him. They left the boat and their father and they followed him. Verse 25, large crowds followed him. Matthew is showing the evidence for who Jesus is as the Messiah. People were responding to Jesus as the Christ There's this overarching call to follow Jesus and people were responding to follow him. When I look at my life, and it was probably about 18 years ago when I was 22, that through a whole series of circumstances and my, my world sort of falling out from under me, through a series of my own stupidity and God's sovereignty somewhere those two collided and my friend began asking me to go to church and I started going to church I was very critical but then as I examined the evidence and and tried to dismantle who Jesus was and these claims about him all I could conclude was that I was a total sinner and that there was overwhelming evidence that Christ was the Messiah. That he was who the Bible claims that he is. And when I decided to follow Jesus, there was, it wasn't for 
fire insurance. It wasn't just because I didn't want to go to hell, and, but nobody wants to go to hell. If you believe in hell, you don't want to go there. A lot of people try to discredit hell because they just don't want to follow Jesus or respond to God. But I was challenged with that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And in comparison to him, I was a total wretch, a total sinner. And if I was to respond to him, it wasn't just uh, to, to make this proclamation. It was to follow him because if he is indeed the Messiah, he is worthy of, of my following him. It requires my surrendering all to him. And that's what these guys did. This is what these people did. That as they went out and they examined who he was, their whole world would be transformed. And Matthew wants us to come to this place where we understand that when he calls Jesus the Christ or the Messiah, there is authority that this is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And when he speaks, when he teaches, it requires that we humble ourselves before him. And unless we get our hearts in this, this place, we're not going to be able to move forward. There's no way that we're going to be able to get through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to cut with his words. He is going to cut us to the core. He's going to challenge us. And it's not a, a sermon just to get to motivate us to good works. Matthew is leading us to understand who Christ is so that our whole worldview would adjust, that we would align all that we are with him and that we would follow after him. And as we follow him, He's going to use us. I don't know what he's thinking. Like, I don't know what God is thinking. With, with a message as precious and as important as reconciling a sinful world to the creator of the universe, what is he thinking trusting us to convey this message? But we're called into the ministry. In this passage, he's four fishermen. He says, I'm going to make you Fishers of men, that as followers of Christ, we are called to share the good news with the world around us. We are, we are called to evangelism and sharing our faith. And this looks different for every person. When I became a Christian, I had this idea that a, a Christian looked like this, like whatever the image was. I, for me, because I was into the Simpsons back then, I thought... Being a Christian looked like Ned Flanders. And so I thought I had to kind of become Ned Flanders, that I had to start wearing cardigan sweaters and, and tucking in my shirt. Well, I have a tucked in shirt now, but a belt and shirt and, and speaking a certain way. And I was trying to be something that I wasn't. It's taken me many years to be comfortable with I'm Gunner. These are the life circumstances that God has given me. These are. Uh, my personality, my sense of humor, and that he wants to use the redeemed version for his glory. And so when I look at this story and he says, I I've called you to be fishers of men, you know, it's interesting that all, all of them aren't in this story. The fishermen are there. And he tells the fishermen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And when I look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 through 24, you don't have to go there, but you can check me out later. Paul says, in whatever state you were when you were called, stay in that state. And he says, if you were a slave, remain a slave. If you were a slave owner, remain a slave owner. If you were this, remain that. If you, were, if you sold insurance, keep selling insurance. If you are married, stay in that condition. Be married. If you're a stay-at-home mom, stay in that condition. If you're... A Navy SEAL, stay in that condition. I'm going to make you a fisher of men in your circumstance, in your calling, in your vocation. These guys are fishermen, and he says, I'm going to make you a fisherman of men, fishers of men. I think I messed it up a little bit there. It took me years. I thought, oh, if I want to serve God, that means I have to go be a pastor. 
which I believe I was called here, and I feel like God led me here as a much longer road than that. But for years I thought, oh, if I want to follow Christ, I have to do this. But, but the reality is, is whatever your vocation is, whatever you do, do for the glory of God, that God will use your background, your circumstances, your vocation. He wants to use all of that for his glory, for, for leading people to Christ. I encourage you, you should be developing and nurturing relationships with those outside of the faith. Because we are called to be used by him to share about the good news of Jesus. He is calling you to follow him. Not a religion, not a denomination, not a a certain way to educate your kids or not to educate your kids. He's calling you to himself, to Jesus. He wants you to walk with him. You know, Karen sent me an email. Be praying for Karen. um, My seminary, I really love my seminary. My seminary is doing something absolutely awesome unbelievable like they are stepping out by faith um the president of the seminary he's a little uneasy he's like i don't know how that we're going to do this but but i'm trusting god that he'll provide and what they want to do is they want to help the churches in san diego by giving one degree higher than the pastor has earned um free of charge um i've i've exceeded i don't qualify anymore because my highest degree is higher than what they're giving away and so they said, well, you can, give a, you can give your benefit to somebody else. And so Karen came to my mind. And so Karen, a year ago, wrestling through, if you know Karen, she is like, wants to study. Like, it's like she just has a desire to be in the word and to grow and to be in seminary. And a year ago, she started looking at that road and she said, Lord, I don't know how you're going to, I don't know how, um, like, I can't do, like, I, you're going to have to do it for free. And so then two weeks ago, I said, hey, I didn't know she prayed that prayer. I said, you know what? I've been really praying, and there's this opportunity, and, and I want to pass this on to you. And she kind of shared with me about her journey. She's like, man, a year ago I prayed, Lord, if you want me to go to seminary, you're going to have to do it for free. God just, they, People don't give out degrees for free. It just doesn't happen. And so she's going through the application process and be praying that it all works out. But yesterday she emailed me, and she... um. She said, well, they want my testimony and my story, and I figure since you're my pastor, I should email it along to you. And I read it. She did not warn me that I needed a tissue. And after I read it, I said, you need to be prepared for sometime in the future. I don't know when, but the time will present itself where I'm going to ask you to share your story um, to the church. And so the story she kind of shares at 12 years old, she's in the front yard with her dad, who is mowing the grass, and he has a massive heart attack and he passes away right before her. And her family wasn't Christian. And she tells the story of, of how, as a 12-year-old girl, she's trying to, to deal with this. And, and she's in her bedroom and she's crying out to, to God, to whoever. And I want to read a, pa- a paragraph from her testimony here. And she said, The Lord heard the cries of a 12-year-old fatherless girl and orchestrated the very footsteps of three evangelists to come knocking on my front door. I distinctly remember hearing, on a clear blue day, a tap on the screen door and the unfamiliar voices talking with Mother. I quickly tiptoed down the hall, keeping out of sight, listening to the words being spoken. For the first time, I heard Jesus' name spoken of as a Savior and friend to those who cry out to him. They continued speaking, as if Jesus was in our very living room. And that last line just grabbed me. Jesus wants us to follow him. He's not on the cross. He's risen. There's so much evidence pointing to the truth about who he is. He wants to give us life. His ways are the best ways. And this, I mean, her story goes on. Basically, at the end of the day, her whole family accepts Christ that night. And so my prayers for us, guys, is that 
as we head into the Sermon on the Mount, that we would be following Jesus, we would be listening to his words. Matthew showed us there's overwhelming evidence to support who Christ is, and I would challenge you, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, to give serious thought and consideration. Do your best to dismantle the claims that are made against him. Your salvation is on the line, and I... The truth is the truth. It's overwhelming historically. He doesn't want us just to make a, a, a to pray a prayer and walk the aisle and so you have your fire insurance card so that when you die, you go to heaven. What he wants is your life. He wants you to follow after him. He wants your whole world to be turned right side up. See, because we're walking upside down. A few years ago, I stopped saying that God wants to turn our world upside down because the reality is we're already upside down. He's trying to fix everything. So he wants to turn your world right side up so that you would follow after him. And as you start walking with him, as you start learning about him, as you start growing with him, you'll start seeing things in a whole different way. And so, Father, we come before you today and we just thank you, Lord. That Christ is the Messiah. We thank you, Lord, that it's not about blind faith. We thank you, Lord, that you left all sorts of evidence and supporting facts that support who Jesus is. But these facts, the presentation of the gospel, none of the, 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 it always requires faith. And so, Father, I pray for those, Lord, who struggle with belief. Father, we pray that your spirit would guide them down the road, Lord, that they would be able to trust in him for salvation. Father, for those of us who have believed, Father, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would shake our faith up, that you would help us, Lord, to really... um, Surrender all to you. You paid it all for us. We have life in you. You know what is best for us. We confess, Lord, that our flesh is so strong and overpowering at times that leads us astray and and into sinful desires. But, Lord, we bow before you. We confess and we desire, Lord, that uh, we need you. That song we sang earlier, we need you every hour, Lord, we need you. Christ in us, our only righteousness. Father, we pray that you would use us as you created us, Lord, that you would help us to to be used by you, Lord. We we pray, Father, for those, our loved ones, our co-workers, our neighbors, Lord, that don't know you as Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to develop deep, meaningful relationships with the world around us so that we could bridge the gap and share Christ with the world around us. Father, we pray for our church that you would continue to use us and guide us, Lord. We love you, Father. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.